Let's turn to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. And I am uh, very excited that uh, I'm starting a new series. And and before I start into my notes proper, I want to just kind of see by a show of hands, I don't ever do this, but how many of you have heard a sermon on the Minor Prophets in church? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, a few of you. Praise the Lord. I, I imagine most of us, myself included, growing up, I never heard. Maybe a sermon on Jonah. Like if we said, who's heard a sermon on Jonah? All of us. But if we start talking about the rest of the minor prophets, um, we can't name them, much less know if we've ever heard a sermon about them. So the goal of this uh, 12-week series is to go one minor prophet a week and really look at Christ in the minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets are called this not because they're unimportant, somehow the minor league of prophets. Uh, It's not like, uh, well, you know, they couldn't quite cut it to the major leagues like Isaiah and Jeremiah, so they're just sort of the so-so second uh, bench warmers of prophets. That's not the reason they're called the minor prophets, not because of their content, but because of their length. They're very short. In fact, all 12 books could be fit in one scroll. And so that one scroll was called the Book of the Twelve. We know them as the Minor Prophets, but they were originally called the Book of the Twelve. And they are the last 12 books in our English Old Testament. And so as you're you know, getting ready for church on a given Sunday, it might be encouraging for you to read through it if you've never read through it before because some of them I won't be able to read every verse because we're going one book a week. Some are very short. I will read the whole thing. Obadiah's one chapter. We'll get through that one. Uh, Here this morning, Hosea's 13 chapters. I can't read every verse uh, to you this morning. But the question that I think helps us to look at the minor prophets and, and see their significance is this. How much did the nation of Israel know about the coming Messiah? How much did the nation of Israel know about the coming Messiah? Now, I've had the opportunity to teach this set of sermons as a class at the Bible college level and the seminary level, and I make the students read books about this and the background and how they're later in the Old Testament canon and how they're reflecting on earlier Old Testament promises. And so I could give you a huge argument about the fact that The minor prophets talk about this Messiah who's coming, who's going to restore everything lost in the garden, that it is a reiteration of the promise to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and a reiteration of the promise to David. There's allusions to uh, all of the prophecies that Moses had about this prophet who was going to come, who was the latter-day prophet who was going to be a greater prophet than Moses. And all of these things are true in the minor prophets. But it's one thing for me to say it to you. I want you to see it for yourselves in this series. That's the goal, is that you would at least have a, at the end of it, a familiarity with a part of your Bible that maybe you've already given up your Bible reading in a year. You don't ever get to the minor prophets because Leviticus wiped you out, right? You're like, man, I make it to March and that's it. I, I can't March Madness of Leviticus and it's over. I can't make it. So the thought of reading the last 12 books of your Old Testament, you're like, I don't know. 
you know. Uh, so I want you to have a familiarity with it, and I want you to see most of all that this promise was to a people who were desperate and needy and longing for a Savior. And God, who brings salvation, gets glorified in the salvation He brings, and this He does through judgment. So the prophet's name, Hosea, means salvation. So the very first book of the twelve, the name of the prophet means salvation. Hosea. And his message was to the northern kingdom. By this time, Israel had split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it was because of civil war and strife. And I I don't have time to go through all of the, the reasons for that. But the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, they didn't really ever have any good kings. At least Judah had some good kings, good King Josiah, good King Hezekiah, but northern kingdom was just a mess. And Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he was going because Israel, the northern kingdom, was unfaithful to Yahweh. And so there was a threat of Assyria. The, one of the world powers of the day, Assyria, was coming to conquer them. And Hosea reigned during, uh, ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. And uh, he was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos. So if you start to build a picture of these prophets, Isaiah and Amos and Hosea all lived at the same time. Now, what was going on is that Israel was prospering greatly under Jeroboam's kingship. I'll read you a little bit of a commentary here. They experienced political and economic resurgence, which led to the development of a wealthy merchant class in Israel. So they were flourishing financially in the north. They had a a middle class, a merchant class that was making tons of money. In fact, God commissioned Amos at the same time to prophesy against the corruption and decay of the leadership. But nobody listened to the message because, after all, Things were good. Life was good. Money was flowing. Business was good. Life was good. So Yahweh then sends Hosea to give another prophecy, and he prophesies that judgment's coming on this nation. And Hosea's threats become a reality when the northern kingdom begins to decline and then Assyria conquers them. And so you might know this book because Hosea is told to take a prostitute for a wife. Uh, we'll look at that here in the first chapter. And uh, he was told that this was going to be a living parable to the nation about how they have treated God. God was married to his people, as it were, by picture, by metaphor, and they were unfaithful in the marriage. They were like this prostitute wife, Gomer. So Hosea was charged to call this rebellious people back to devotion to Yahweh. And there's two major sections. Uh, The first three chapters are this living parable of Gomer and her children, picturing the covenant marriage between Israel and Yahweh. And then the rest of the prophecy from chapter 4 to 14 are accusations that warn against coming judgment and promises of redemption that would come after that. And so... It breaks up pretty simply, which makes it nice for an outline. I have it up there. 
uh, behind me or it will be behind me in a moment. Ironically, God's judgment against the people in this book, it targeted the areas of life that were most sacred to this wealthy Israel living near the Canaanites. Agricultural abundance, material prosperity, sexual vitality and fertility, shrines, altars, idols, and military might. So that was the, what the, the Canaanites prized what, when they worshipped the god Baal, Baal, that's what they worshipped. And Israel had fallen into this same pattern. What I want you also to see this afternoon is that Hosea's story is our story. The story of Hosea is, is our story. That it's not just Israel who lived some, you know, 2,700 years ago, 2,800 years ago who were unfaithful and God judged them. No, we are the same. We've been like Gomer, unfaithful to God time and again by our idolatries, but God is faithful. And while we were sinners, Christ brought us back with His blood. So, let's dig into this. Hosea, I'm going to read chapter 1 to begin, and I'll have a different strategy every week on how much I read at a given time, so bear with me. Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call him Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So we jump right into this book, and it's right immediately God tells Hosea, go marry Gomer, a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom from her. And the children's names will be prophecies. And the three names will be prophecies concerning my people who've been unfaithful. And yet in the midst of this judgment, there's hope already in chapter 1. So there's this command, and, and what a picture. What a picture. It, it, it almost assaults us with the, the command Go and marry a wife of whoredom. And you're thinking, time out. Wait a second. Is that even right? Is that even 
something that could be honorable. And what Yahweh is saying is, this is exactly what my people are doing to me. Hosea, I'm going to use your life as a picture, a parable of what it's like between me and my people. That Hosea, as a husband, endured the same treatment God has endured as a covenant Lord of Israel. And you know what this means? It means more than any other, Hosea has a right to speak in God's name. He's shared in God's experiences and therefore can speak with God's heart on the matter as a prophet. And Israel, we see here that God's not happy with them, but this has been their condition from the very beginning, hasn't it? Even when they were in the wilderness, they disobeyed God. They wanted to go back to Egypt where everything was great. In fact, Deuteronomy 9.6 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess it because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. He uses such uh, endearing words like stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-hearted to refer to His people, and yet He gives them the land because of His mercy and His grace and His steadfast love. Because He chose them and set His affection upon them as His people. But every act of apostasy, every act of immorality drives a wedge between the relationship of Yahweh to His people. In fact, it might cause you to cringe just thinking about this picture. And you might be squirming a little bit and thinking, Ryan, get off of verse 2 and move on. This is how God feels about His people when they turn their back on Him. God knows. This is, this is what drives a wedge between our relationship with God. Is the same sins, the same immoralities, the same apostasies, the same love for wealth and prosperity and comfort and enjoyment apart from God. God knew they needed a Savior. He knew they needed to be delivered. He's going to say, I'm not going to deliver you by an army, by the strength of horses and bows and chariots and horsemen. You need to be delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. You need an internal delivery. Well, then he takes and names these children. He says, you're going to have children with this woman. And uh, in the context, it seems to mean when they're children of whoredom, in verse 3, that they're children who bear the disgrace of their mother's behavior. Meaning their reputations are this, not that they are this way. And he names them. And we have the first name is not translated for us. It's Jezreel. It's given in my ESV anyway. It means scattered. God's going to scatter Israel throughout the world for their unfaithfulness. This, the second name is uh, translated in my ESV, no mercy. Uh, lo ruhamah, no, not loved, not pitied, no mercy. The sin of the people has caused God to have no pity on them. In other words, they're going to reap what they sow. Yet even in judgment, God shows them mercy. Look at verse 7 for a second. I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. There's not a whole lot of data yet in this book. But here's this first hint of a promise that, oh yeah, God had promised Judah and David, who was a descendant of Judah, that the, there was going to be one of his descendants who was going to restore what was lost, who was going to bring salvation, who was going to sit on the throne forever. And here Hosea, God through Hosea is mentioning, 
Oh yeah. You want to know where the mercy is going to come in this situation? It's going to come on the house of Judah and salvation is going to be through the house of Judah. Anticipation of Jesus who was a descendant of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. How can a nation no longer loved by God, that's the name, not pitied, no mercy, not loved, yet be forgiven and shown mercy? In this descendant of Judah, of David, who we know is Jesus. Isn't that great hope? Even in the midst of this judgment, it, it reminds me of the garden when Adam and Eve are being kicked out of the garden, and yet even in the midst of it, God promises mercy through this descendant of Eve who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. This seems to be God's pattern. His heart, that when He promises judgment, He always promises mercy. Even as He kicks them out, He in the garden, Adam and Eve, He clothes their nakedness, which is their shame after the fall with animals that He provided. Not loved, not pitied. That's the second name. The third name, not my people, lo ami. This is God saying, you're no longer my people because of your sin and because of this judgment. In fact, all of chapter 2 is an elaboration on what it means that they're not His People. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are not my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. And upon her children also I will have no mercy." Because they're children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, and she has conceived them who acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her up by the way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry. And went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. 
And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Wow, what a, what a, a lot going on in this chapter. You can see again mercy in the midst of judgment because there's going to be a multitude that cannot be counted that are going to be called children of the living God at the end of the chapter. In fact, Hosea 1.10 is quoted in Romans 9, which you heard read earlier, as well as Hosea 2.23. And the way that the Apostle Paul uses these bookends to talk about this whole section that I read is to, to, to make two comments. First, that Gentiles are included in God's redemptive plan, and that second, a large remnant of believing Jews will be preserved. And this is how Paul understands what God is talking about here. So the book of Hosea is telling us God is going to judge sin, but he has a promise of hope in the midst of it, that the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, that they will appoint for themselves one leader, one head. Remember I said they had been divided and split. And there's going to be one ruler. I think this is a reference to Jesus again, the Messiah who's coming. And they're going to go up from the land and it's going to be a great day in the day of Jezreel and the names of these three children are reversed. No longer are they not my people, now they're children of the living God. No more are they not loved and no mercy. Now God's mercy and faithfulness and steadfast love is poured out on them and no more are they scattered Jezreel, but they're gathered back together. The names of these children that were curses now become reversed when God delivers it, delivers them. And when is He going to do this? Look at chapter 3, verses 1-5. to The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days and you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So in history, we know Israel goes into exile by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah will later go into exile by the great nation of Babylon. And what it did when they were in exile is it broke them of their idolatry. When they returned to the land of Israel, they no longer worshipped other gods. They stopped worshipping the Baals, the Baals. In fact, verse 4 of chapter 3, they're going to be without king or prince many days while they're in this foreign land. But when they return, verse 5 says they're going to seek David their king. 
Well, what is Hosea talking about? He's again alluding to this promise that was to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would never lack a descendant who would sit on the throne and that one was coming who was going to reign forever. The Messiah. This is a picture of redemption. David will be their king. Israel will return and seek the Lord. And they'll come to in fear to the Lord into His goodness in the latter days. These last days, these end times. When Jesus came on earth, He said, basically the kingdom of heaven's at hand. The last days are here. The Messiah's come. And we know on this side of the cross that the means by which He brought this mercy and forgiveness and kindness and brought us to Himself is through His substitutionary death, His resurrection. Him being our high priest. Him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away our sin. He took our sins upon Himself and gave us His righteousness. And we receive it not by works, but by faith in Him. And that is good news. That is joy. That is peace. That is wonderful. We don't face the judgment of God in His righteousness and holiness. Why? Because Jesus faced it for us. Now what we get is we get the mercy and kindness of God and we get the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us, as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So when you're feeling overwhelmed, I mean, just think about these three chapters. We haven't even got to the rest yet, and I've got not a lot of time to get through it. There wasn't enough laughing about that. It was more fear, I think, and anxiety. Think about this. You know that God is righteous and holy and judgment's coming. How'd you live this week? You feel the weight of that? I do. And if we were to face God apart from Jesus, there's fear. And trembling, not in a holy way, but in a way that knows that we can't stand. And the guilt and the shame of our sin can weigh us down. But yet in the midst of this, God is not simply saying there is judgment and there's no hope. He's saying that in the midst of judgment, there is still hope if you will turn to me and to my solution. And the solution is hinted at so far in a couple places. I'm teasing out this son of David who's coming that you will seek, that we know is Jesus. Well, Gomer's restored in these verses. She returns to Hosea. A picture of Israel returning to Yahweh. What a, what a glorious thought. This is love, isn't it? This is God loving us when we were at our worst. And what the book of Hosea pictures is, Hosea, you go and marry that woman, Gomer, and you love her. And she's going to be unfaithful to you. And she's going to chase after other lovers. And she's going to get rich off of those other lovers. And you're going to be brokenhearted, Hosea. And the first child we see is his because it says she has a child by him. But then in the Hebrew and even in the English, the language changes about the next two children. And we're not even sure that they're his. Perhaps he's not even sure. 
And God tells him in chapter 3, you go and buy her off the auction block. She's been chasing after other lovers. She's been sold into slavery. She can't even deliver herself. So you go and buy her off the auction block, the slavery block, and you love her again and you take her to be your wife again. Why did God give us this book of Hosea? To reveal His character as the covenant-keeping, loving, steadfast God to His people. This is what He does. He's faithful. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 3, Oh, that you would know how high and wide and deep and long the love of Christ is, so that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. If you could understand this, if I could understand this at an instinctual level, how great the love of God the Father is for us. If we could get this, we would be secure in Christ, wouldn't we? We wouldn't lack assurance. We wouldn't doubt the Father's love. We wouldn't think that we've somehow out the grace of God, and we sure wouldn't want to sin that grace would abound. We would want to draw near to Him and love Him and obey Him and serve Him. We know that everything that's going on in our lives has passed through God's hand. He's sovereign. But when we understand the love of God, we know that everything passing through the hands of a sovereign God is not arbitrary. It's not pernicious. It's not from the hands of some, some force of fate that, that can't even be moved. This is a God who loves us. And so if He has allowed this to happen in our lives, it's because He knows it's for our best and for His good, His glory. He has you right where He wants you, Christian. You might be frustrated with life. You might think that God has abandoned you because of your circumstances. But He's a loving Father in heaven who never abandons His children. He's faithful. That's what the book of Hosea teaches us. Well, chapters 4-14, to we're going to go through a lot faster and we're not going to read every verse. So amen to that. We won't be here till 1. Oh, I mean, uh, that's if we started at 10. We won't be here till 5. So the lessons are repeated in chapters 4 to 14. The living parable of Hosea and Gomer's marriage is repeated over and over in the next chapters. So chapters 4 to 7 are accusations against Israel. And he takes the names of the children and he repeats these names in accusations chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 hear the word of the lord o children of israel the lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land there's no faithfulness or steadfast love no knowledge of god in the land they're swearing lying murder stealing and committing adultery they break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the Birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. They're scattered. Jezreel, there's this scattering of the people. There's no faithfulness, no love of God, no knowledge of God. And then verses 4 to 14, look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for iniquity. Verse 10, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they've forsaken the Lord you have this not my people and and in chapter four if we were to take the time to look at every verse he's really laying the blame on the leaders of Israel they're the ones chasing after this 
and the people are following him. Them, the leaders. Then he says, chapter 4, verse 15 to chapter 7, verse 16, this same last name of not loved, not pitied. Um, I guess that was the second name in the list he brings last here. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. There's the leaders. You hear it, priests, the king. The judgment is for you. You've been a snare at Mizpah and a net set upon Tabor. The revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Judgment's coming. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. There's a, a call to repent. Return to the Lord. And then chapter 7, look at verses 13 to 16. Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. There's this... People are too deep into their sin to repent, as it were. They know they need to repent of something, but they cry out to the idols instead of crying out to God. What's interesting is Jesus uses this passage in reference to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9. He quotes Hosea 6.6 when Jesus is accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And this same accusation upon the leaders of Israel in Hosea's day, Jesus is alluding to, you're doing the same thing in my day. Well, these accusations from chapters 4 to 7 then have proclamations, prophecies by Yahweh from chapter 8 to the rest of the book, and it moves back and forth between the first person speaking, Yahweh, and third person speaking, Hosea. Chapters 8 to 10, a proclamation that there's a false security and a false prosperity in the land of Israel. Chapter 8, verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. God acknowledges you've become rich, you've built palaces and yet you've forgotten your Maker in the midst of it. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, hypocritical worship in the midst of this prosperity. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. And then look again down at chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it's time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. You've plowed iniquity. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of 
your warriors. There's this appeal to repentance again. So the the message is clear. Israel was prosperous. They're, they're, They're building palaces, but then they forgot their maker. And so even the altars to the idols, as they improve their economic prosperity, they improve the, the, the altars to the idols. They give more and more to the idols rather than God. And so God says, I'm going to destroy it all. I'm going to tear it all down. It's a false security. And it's a false prosperity. Chapters 11 to 13. This judgment then is coming. Hosea 11.1 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now God is causing them to remember His faithfulness and His love when He delivered them out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And you know, this was quoted in the book of Matthew. You might have, that verse might have sounded familiar to your ears. Jesus is this ideal Israel in Matthew 2 who is faithful in the wilderness temptation and fulfilled all the messianic expectations and God says just like in the exodus I manifested my faithfulness and my love to Israel and I delivered them out of Egypt when they were a child I delivered them and I loved Israel and I called them out of Egypt so too am I delivering my people through Jesus this ideal Israel whom I loved in fact what's interesting in the quote in Matthew 2.15 to speak of Jesus, Jesus had to flee to Egypt from Herod when Herod was trying to kill him. And then Matthew says it was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. It's a very difficult passage to unravel, but Matthew, I think, understood God to be speaking through Hosea here to say that the son of David, the Messiah, who's the ideal Israel, is faithful. Unlike the nation who went out of Egypt into the wilderness, was tempted for 40 years and failed, and that generation died in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted for 40 days, but unlike Israel, He was faithful. And He's the one leader who is to come who will make God's people faithful to Him. This is... This is a great hope in the midst of all of this judgment is that God is faithful. God's the hero. In fact... In this whole series, that's what you're going to see. You want to know who the hero of the story is in every minor prophet? Well, it sure ain't Jonah, that's for sure. I know you know that one. It's God. God is faithful. That will encourage your own faith in God. To see His faithfulness proved over and over and over again. Turn over to chapter 13. Verse 4, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, and they were filled, and their heart was lifted up, and they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Man, that is graphic. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me king and princes. And I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. 
The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he's an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. So again, in the midst of this judgment, God says, you don't have a king or a prince to deliver you. You don't have a hero. There's there's no one coming out of your own people that's going to deliver you. So you know what? I'm going to deliver you. And of course, we know Paul quotes this again in Romans. Oh, death, where is your where are your plagues, as he says here? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Well, he says the sting of sin is death, but God is the one who delivered us through Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Israel should know no other gods, but God says she's gone after many gods, turned away from her one true husband, Yahweh. But there is future grace coming. The book doesn't end with judgment. Chapter 14, verse 1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. You've stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to Him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more. Our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will appeal, heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger is turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath My shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From Me comes your fruit. Like Hosea and Gomer's broken marriage that is restored God promises healing and restoration through repentance. The love is restored through the repentance of His people. And then there's this postscript. Verse 9, the last verse of the book. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in Him, but transgressors stumble in them. So this last verse... It tells us that this book is not just about something that happened in the past with Israel, that we don't have to worry about Hosea anymore. No, God says, I'm still the same way. I'm still the same God. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Stop running to idols and saviors who you think will deliver you. Stop chasing after other gods, committing other adulteries. And think about the gods that they were worshiping. The gods of wealth. The gods of pleasure. The gods of security because of military might. It's not very different than the gods we have today. We don't make an idol out of them. At least not a physical idol, but we still chase after 
money and pleasure and security and peace. God says, none of that will save you. I have loved you. I created you. You see, you and I are the unfaithful objects of God's ever-faithful love. And if we're honest, as I said at the beginning, we're the Gomer in this story, not the Hosea. We're not the righteous man who was told to marry an unfaithful wife. We're the unfaithful wife who's been unfaithful to our righteous husband, God. And when we understand this, we begin to understand what God's love truly is. I think this is why John in his first epistle says this. 1 John 4, verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What an incredible thought. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And that word propitiation, I mean, that's, that's like five or six syllables. I can't even count that high. And um, he says propitiation. What does it mean? It means Jesus Christ is the satisfaction of God's righteous character for sin. That's what it means. God has propitiated his own wrath towards us. He's, he's satisfied the righteous requirement of his character. You see, sometimes it seems like, well, that God of the Old Testament, He's a God of wrath and anger and holiness and righteousness. And the God of New Testament is the God of love, Jesus. And Jesus had to talk the Father out of wiping us out. That's the way it's portrayed often, but it's not true. You hear in Hosea that the Father is the one who's loved His people in this way. And we hear in the New Testament... Whose idea was it? God the Father so loved the world He gave His Son. 1 John 4, this is love. The love of God the Father was made manifest. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins. The Father's the one who made this plan and set it into motion and loved us with a faithful love. This is why Paul in Romans 9, when he's thinking about the book of Hosea, he says, man, this love is so big that even people, Gentiles, who were never part of the covenant are now in. This gives glory to God. It magnifies His name. That's why he had said a chapter earlier, by the way, if God did not spare His Son, how will He not along with Him freely give us all things? He gave us His best. He's demonstrated His love to the greatest. He gave us His Son. How will He not give us all things? And when we doubt the love and goodness of our Father, it's not merely that we're questioning what He's doing, we're questioning His character. And Hosea demonstrates to us this book that His steadfast love, His faithfulness, His mercy, this is who He is. This is how He has acted towards His people from all eternity. But He will judge. He will discipline. But yet there's an offer of hope in the midst of it. 
If you don't know Jesus, come to Him. Put your faith in Him. None of the gods of this world will ever bring you hope and comfort in salvation. They will never deliver. Stop chasing after the idols of this world. They don't save. All they do is let you down and disappoint you and bring anxiety. Only God. Only God saves. Only God delivers. Only God brings peace. This is what the people of Israel needed to hear in Hosea's day. It's what we need to hear in our day. Let me pray. Father, thank You for this time and Your Word. What a timely word Hosea is. I think of our culture. I think of my friends who don't know Jesus chasing after the wind, after prosperity and security, after sexual pleasure and hedonism, but never finding lasting peace and joy. And all of it is unfaithfulness to their Maker. Spiritual adultery. And Father, we've all been guilty, and yet we know in Christ we've all been forgiven. And so we don't have to live in paralyzing fear and trembling, thinking that we're just one sin away from being kicked out of Your family. We know that Jesus paid it all. And all to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but You washed it white as snow. We love You. We're grateful for our Savior. You promised Him. In Hosea's day, this son of David who was going to come, who was going to be there, one ruler, one king, one leader. And Jesus, when He came, He said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I will bring them that they have one shepherd and they will be one flock. And here we are with Jesus our King, our shepherd, our Savior who is the head of us. And we are His flock. We are His people. And we're in His kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will never end. And so we, of all people, have the greatest joy. Minister to my brothers and sisters. By Your Spirit, would You remind them of what's true. Remind them that they've been loved. Remind them that they're forgiven in Christ. I pray all of this in His name. Amen.